You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. The president's new infrastructure plan aims to do more than just shore up the nation's roads and bridges. It's also an effort to tackle climate change by boosting the green economy with billions of dollars in new investment. But not everyone is sold. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and now that the climate debate has been placed squarely at the center of the national agenda once again, we're going to get some local perspective on what building a green economy might look like here in the Bay Area and why it's fair to say that in many communities, the work of getting there is already well underway. There is a a tremendous amount of really exciting initiatives happening on many, many fronts. That's Andreas Corellis, the founder and executive director of Revolve, a San Francisco-based solar energy nonprofit. His new book is Climate Courage, How Tackling Climate Change Can Build Community, Transform the Economy, and Bridge the Political Divide in America. Here's our conversation. Andreas Corellis, thanks for being on KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me. So starting off, taking a look at the broad overview of this uh, infrastructure package and its potential impact on the fight against climate change, as somebody who thinks an awful lot about the green economy and what the green economy could look like in the coming years, what are the major take-homes for you? What do you see in there that is worth being excited about? Well, Keith, uh, I think there's a lot to be excited about. You know, the first thing I would say is that, uh, you know, what I've seen from people who are in the industry who have been studying this for a very long time is that this is uh, the most uh, dynamic, the largest climate and clean energy uh, legislation that we've ever seen in our lifetime. So this is really uh, starting to approach the scale of the problem uh, in terms of what we need to solve the climate crisis. So that in and of itself is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, You know, it goes uh, as far as pointing to 100% clean energy by 2035, uh, which is really the low-hanging fruit in terms of us solving the climate crisis. We have to get off fossil fuels. We have to focus on clean energy development. Uh, It also is uh, going to sort of make us a leader in clean energy uh, transportation in terms of electric vehicles, uh, manufacturing those cars and those batteries uh, here in the United States. Uh, there's a rebate for buying EVs that will be made uh, in the United States. Uh, there are uh, a tremendous amount um, of initiatives focused on uh, redesigning and upgrading our building infrastructure, making our buildings electric and more energy efficient. Uh, There's a tremendous amount focused on revitalizing the electric grid, uh, which is another sorely needed uh, component of this infrastructure package that we've been hoping for for a long time. Uh, There is a uh, a number of health, public health benefits that are going to come from all of those things, from uh, reducing uh, air pollution, uh, and in particular, uh, you know, we're also going to be seeing a ton of focus on research and development of next generation clean energy and energy efficiency technologies. Uh, so altogether, I mean, it is it is robust, it is bold, 
Uh, and it's really going to start moving the needle uh, on the climate crisis, and it's going to create jobs. Good. I mean, that's one of the things that's really exciting about it as well is that it's focused on good-paying union jobs uh, here in the United States that can't be outsourced. Uh, you know, people retrofitting buildings uh, and the like. So that's really, uh, you know, what's innovative about it to me is that it's marrying the climate crisis as well as the economic crisis that we're currently in and coming up with a unique solution to both that really everybody can get behind. And I, I think that one of the big questions that has come up since this infrastructure package was introduced is what exactly should count as infrastructure? I mean, mm. we're talking about things like investments in technology. We're talking about things like uh, protections against uh, wildfire risks, natural disasters, uh, energy, clean energy standards. Uh, so for a lot of folks, I mean, that might just seem a little bit more abstract than the typical stuff that we think of in terms of roads, airports, bridges. Uh, curious for your thoughts on what we should be picturing when we think of, you know, the five-year impact, the five-year vision uh, or the 10-year vision of what all this infrastructure would look like and, and, and why we should think of it as infrastructure? Yes. Well, that's a great question, Keith. The thing is that without, if, if, if this bill wasn't uh, on the table, uh, if we were looking at how do we solve the climate crisis, what we would really need to ask ourselves is how are we going to remake everything uh, within the next 10 years? How are we going to rethink and redesign our energy, our roads, the way we get around uh, what we eat for that matter? Uh, I mean, really it does require that level of uh, improvement. Now, it's also really exciting because it means we get to redesign and, and sort of reinvent a lot of things. And so I think that the bill really understands that and it, and it fully puts forth a vision of how America can become a leader uh, in not only solving the climate crisis, but just sort of becoming a leader in what is going to be the new way of doing things around the world. I mean, many of the other countries around the world uh, have already been investing in clean energy, uh, energy efficiency, uh, electric vehicles, um, you know, before America has really stepped up in the way that it can. So this bill, I think, is really just it's, 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 it's helping us not only catch up, but really become a leader uh, in moving forward. So in terms of what does you know, traditional or typical infrastructure uh, look like, certainly all the things you mentioned are included, you know, roads, airports, et cetera. Uh, however, this bill is very much a climate change bill. This is very much saying not only do we need to reinvent everything in order to mitigate the climate crisis, but we also need to become resilient and adaptive to the climate changes that we know are already coming. Uh, and so I think, you know, we have to open up our minds around what it is that infrastructure uh, includes and, and what does that entail. And, and frankly, I think that the bill uh, really does that very well. Speaking with Andreas Corrales, uh, once again, the author of Climate Courage, How Tackling Climate Change Can Build Community, Transform the Economy, and Bridge the Political Divide in America. Let's talk about some of the Bay Area impacts here. They've been highlighted over the last week or so. Some of the Bay Area projects that are set to potentially uh, get some benefit from this would be uh, the BART system, including the BART extension into San Jose. Uh, also potentially to benefit would be the uh, extending the uh, Bay Area's express lane network and also potentially... Uh, uh, connecting high-speed rail through the region. Uh, talk a little bit about the transport gains that you think Bay Area residents specifically might be able to expect. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think you know one of the things that uh, we 
uh, often overlook is how much uh, local transportation, particularly diesel trucks, uh, uh, buses, and the like, uh, Really, you know, harm our health, uh, harm harm our, uh, our 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 health through air pollution. So that, in and of itself, of creating uh, electric uh, transportation, uh, rail, uh, trans uh, transforming uh, buses that were previously diesel to electric, uh, all of that is going to drastically reduce our local air pollution. Uh, it's going to drastically reduce rates of asthma and cancer and even premature deaths that come from that. So that in and of itself is a massive win uh, for people in the Bay Area. Now, not, not necessarily looking to what's going to be the climate impact down the road. Uh, the other thing that you know the bill talks about is you know, creating pathways, um, really trying to break down what were siloed uh, communities, environmental justice communities, uh, sort of that that did not have access. Uh, now there's going to be more pathways to uh, to create a viable transportation means for people to get around. Um, you know, and, and including uh, everybody to those technologies and to those opportunities. Uh, so those are some of the highlights that that I think. Um, and obviously, I mean, for anyone who rides the BART, we know that, uh, you know, uh, at least, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, you know, it felt like being in a, you know, a can of sardines, uh, you know, when you're trying to, uh, you know, get to work. So, uh, so all those things, I think, are going to be super welcome benefits uh, for those of us on, our, on a daily basis. All right. I want to reintroduce you right now. You are listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Uh, today on the program, we are considering what the national fight against climate change might look like in uh, at the uh, biggest and smallest of levels over the next uh, five or ten years. Uh, speaking with us is Andreas Corellis. He is the founder and executive director of Revolve. Uh, he's also the author of the new book, Climate Courage, How Tackling Climate Change Can Build Community, Transform the Economy, and Bridge the Political Divide in America. So talking about that political uh, divide, it seems like from the uh, Republican camp, this many of the proposals that are being put forward here are sort of dead on arrival. In particular, there's a lot of skepticism about the price tag that all of this is going to cost. We're talking about $2 trillion plus dollars, and also uh, the Biden team considering a number of uh, tax uh, I- increases to get the funding for this, uh, looking at increasing the uh, corporate uh, taxes. So, you know, you're talking about job gains, but uh, that uh, would, in some ways, it need to be balanced against the uh, potential losses that corporate America might see if uh, uh, on the margin their, uh, you know, profits are going down and it's uh, more difficult for some businesses to sustain whatever enterprise they're trying to put forward. Uh, how do you think of that tension between the uh, the costs on the one hand uh, that uh, new taxes might impose and the potential benefits of new spending? First of all, I think um, you know, clean energy uh, and climate solutions are actually much more uh, broadly supported by all Americans than we actually realize. Uh, you know, a lot of times uh, in the media in particular, and, and certainly what we hear from politicians, is that you know, climate is this really divided uh, issue. It's, it's a divisive issue. Uh, you know, Democrats are for solving it and somehow Republicans aren't. And that's not true. Uh, so that was, you know, one of the main findings of the book is that, you know, o- you know over two thirds of Americans understand that climate change is real and is caused by humans. And 85% of Americans are actually uh, looking to see 100% clean energy uh, from their utility. Uh, They would like to see 100% clean energy. So when you think about it that way, what else do 85% of Americans really agree on, right? I mean, not that many issues. So so there's actually this broad, broad support for 100% clean energy. And that's not only at the 
uh, at the public's level, meaning at the uh, sort of uh, citizens level, but it's also on the business level. So when you look at corporations, as you mentioned, yes, um, you know, corporate taxes, uh, you know, would go up. Um, but, uh, you know, if you look at, for example, of the top six uh, most highly valued companies in the world, uh, the top five uh, or, or, or five of those top six are already 100% clean energy powered, right? They already are using 100% renewable energy. So that's actually where uh, business uh, and corporations have been going um, without government support. And they've actually been pushing for a long time to get government support. Look, let's set a path forward so that businesses can be powered by clean energy. It's what consumers want. It's what the businesses want because they know it's going to save them money over time. Uh, it's really only you know the handful of dirty fossil fuel industries uh, that are the ones uh, sort of pushing back against this. But the rest of corporate America is fully on board with with 100% renewable energy and energy efficiency. It just makes sense from a business case. Right. Uh, But when we talk about that shift to the green economy, we are talking about real structural shifts in the way our economy works. And I mean, we are potentially looking at job losses in some sectors, especially if, as uh, many advocates for the green economy hope, uh, uh, green energy overtakes uh, energy sources such as coal or fossil fuels. Uh, We're talking about people with those coal jobs or fossil fuel jobs uh, losing out. And we've actually uh, seen examples of that uh, in, in California. California as well, uh, uh, pointed out recently by uh, California representative or Bay Area representative Mark Desanier. Uh, he says uh, Philip 66 uh, announced that it would close two California plants, uh, one in Co- Contra Costa and then also repurpose its uh, Rodeo refinery into a renewable fuel site. So for a lot of people, we are talking about disruptions uh, in, in the years ahead. Uh, how do you offset that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic question, Keith. And it's true. There is going to be a transition where I mean, put it this way, regardless of climate change, even if we didn't have the climate change problem, the clean energy economy is going to replace the fossil fuel economy. That's We're already seeing that throughout the pandemic. Uh, we've seen this massive drop of the valuation of fossil fuel companies, uh, and it's not because of climate change. It's because of uh, the way that the uh, clean energy economy is outpacing fossil fuels and is becoming cheaper and the more disruptive technology. Now, what that means is 100, you're 100% right. There are going to be people who work in the fossil fuel industry that are going to be um, uh, out of a job and are going to be needing to be trained and brought into the clean energy economy. Now, a few things to point out. First of all, you know we actually tend to think that you know there's a lot more fossil fuel jobs than there are already today. Before any of this, you know, new bill or spending happens. Uh, we actually already have twice as many people working in the solar industry today than in the entire fossil fuel industry working on electricity generation, right? That's to, and that's only solar. That's not even including wind and, and all the other uh, clean energy technologies. So that's already where we are. Now, uh, Mark Jacobson, who's the professor of civil engineering at Stanford University, uh, is someone who I quote uh, in the book, and he's a lead thinker on clean energy. And his team has researched this and basically said, In the United States, uh, when we get to 100% renewable energy, not only will it create $1 trillion worth of savings every year for Americans on their electricity bills, but it will also create a net of 2 million new jobs, right? So after you've already accounted for all the losses of jobs from the fossil fuel industry, 
you're now uh, sort of coming out on top with 2 million additional jobs in clean energy. All right. I want to remind listeners that they are listening to KCBS in depth. I'm Keith Menconi. Today we're speaking to Andreas Corellis. Uh, he is the executive director of Revolve, uh, based out of San Francisco, a nonprofit that's helping other nonprofits install solar panels. Also, the author of uh, Climate Courage: How Tackling Climate Change Can Build Community, Transform the Economy, and Bridge the Political Divide in America. And uh, so far, we've been speaking mostly about this infrastructure package and its impact on the climate fight. But I want to take a step back from that because uh, you yourself, a lot of what you're focusing on is not necessarily at the national level or even at the state level. It's uh, at the community level. And uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, your own disenchantment with the way that climate politics uh, have gone over the last uh, 15 or so years. So uh, let's uh, let's start that conversation. Tell us a little bit about why you think the focus on the community level in the climate fight is uh, something that really needs a little bit more attention? Absolutely. That's a fantastic question, Keith. You know, when uh, when I first got started, you know, in the uh, climate movement uh, and, and largely to this day, there has been uh, really sort of two uh, ways that people usually talk about how do we solve it. Um, and on the one hand, it's it reduce our personal footprint, right? Change your light bulbs, drive less, uh, my favorite is, you know, put air in your tires, right? Um, and and you know, recycle, use it, use a tote bag, compost, um, etc. Right? Eat lower on the food chain. Now, all of those things are super important, and we should be doing them, right? Um, you know, not only because it's, uh, you know, we all contribute to the issue, so we all need to reduce our footprint, but also it it, it sends a signal to uh, your community and to the public that this is these are the trends that we want to see, and those trends have actually uh, made a real impact, and you see uh, many more businesses offering, uh, you know, sustainable products and 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 opportunities to uh, reduce your footprint. So that's all well and good, but it's really not going to solve the problem at the scale that we need. Now, on the other side, what you hear a lot of uh, you know, environmental groups and others pointing to for a long time is, well, the, the federal government is the only way that we can solve this. And, uh, and so we just have to you know, march and protest and send letters to our senators and hope uh, for the best, cross our fingers, that the federal government will solve this. Now, um, you know, it's interesting here that we're talking about this infrastructure bill uh, because we do have uh, the House and the Senate. Uh, we do have a, a Democratic president who, um, you know, so for the first time in over a decade, uh, we actually do have the window to pass this massive, you know, climate legislation. So, um, uh, and, and so I am really excited about that. And, and, and that that actually could be, you know, the big, big win that we need uh, to solve the climate crisis. But, uh, but prior to, you know, uh, November, right, uh, uh, when, for for the past you know two decades, there has been a lot of talk and hope for federal action, but not a lot of momentum. Uh, what I was forced to reconcile was okay, if solving it at the personal level, if if focusing our on our personal footprint is not going to cut it, and if we can hope all day that the federal government solves it, but we may never get there, then what avenue? is able to solve the problem that we ourselves as citizens can play a role in, that we can drive ourselves? Where can we be empowered to solve the climate crisis? Because, you know, Keith, one of the things that I found through the research over the years is that when people are faced with a problem, 
and, and this really comes down to the psychology of, of our human mind. How do we how do we appreciate problems that are brought to us? If there's a huge problem that really you have no way of doing anything about, uh, our mind tends to tune that out, and we kind of want to turn away from it and focus on uh, you know anything else because no one wants to sit with a big scary problem that you can't do anything about. Uh, so we have in order to engage more people in the climate fight, in order to get people involved we have to give them a way to feel empowered, to feel that they have a sense of agency, that if I do this, we can actually solve the problem. There's a way out of this. And to me, that is all at the community level, right? At our community level, we can create solutions that do have an impact. We can see those impacts. Those impacts can benefit our community. We can work with our neighbors so it doesn't feel like we're just doing it all on our own. and if it's a big enough impact at one community, uh, at the community level, then the next community might decide to do it as well. And then the next community and so on and so forth. You're creating a ripple at the community level across the country that is then able to uh, reach up to the highest levels. Um, you know, there's a perfect example of this um, that I talk about in the book, uh, and it's a campaign from the Sierra Club. And uh, the Sierra Club, obviously, you know, the oldest and largest, you know, environmental organization in the country. Uh, and they, a few years ago, started a campaign called Ready for 100. And the idea was that they would they would train uh, volunteers anywhere in America to uh, work at their community level, at the local, city, county, uh, or state level, and convince uh, their uh, elected officials or their community leaders uh, to commit to 100% clean energy, right? And they were so successful uh, in just the past few years at doing this, at getting these clean energy commitments, that now one third of every American, uh, I'm sorry, one third of Americans live in a place that has a 100% uh, clean energy commitment. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, Ed, you know, Senator Ed Markey uh, was you know, quoted that fact, you know, in a speech about climate change. And he said, look, we're already getting there. You know, we have, you know, one third of Americans lives in a place where uh, there is a commitment to 100% clean energy. And that was all done by community-based volunteers, right? So that's really what I'm talking about. You know, at the community level, we can really um, sort of mobilize and solve this much faster uh, uh, and, and, and we can exercise our agency in solving the problem. All right. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, but let's uh, get a little bit more concrete and uh, uh, laser focus in on some of those community solutions, because you do highlight a number of them in your book. You talk about uh, job training efforts that have taken place in Richmond. You talk about uh, other uh, green job training efforts that have happened in Oakland. You talk about uh, Georgetown uh, in Texas that went 100% renewable. It's now a 100% renewable city. Uh, and, you know, your, your, your own Revolve effort that is uh, at the community level uh, helping more nonprofits get solar power and uh, uh, some of the benefits that uh, come with that. So in just a couple minutes that we have left. I mean, uh, maybe highlight what sorts of efforts are inspiring you right now and what you're hoping that will translate into in the years ahead. Absolutely. Uh, well, I think you know, there is a, a tremendous amount of, of really exciting initiatives happening uh, on, on many, many fronts. Um, you know, one that comes to mind, you know, here in the Bay Area uh, is, uh, you know, in East Oakland, uh, there's a, a church 
that we helped go solar called Faith Baptist Church. Uh, it's an African-American church. It's been there for over 40 years. Uh, and I met the pastor, uh, Curtis Robinson, at a conference, and he came to me and said, uh, you know, we want to go solar. I know that this is the wave of the future. And most importantly, this is really what we need in our community, right? We want to make sure that, that our community is not left out uh, of the green revolution. Um, and so Revolve, uh, the nonprofit I run, uh, we put uh, solar on, on, on Faith Baptist Church, uh, and they're now saving over 50% on their electricity bills, which they're able to put back into their community. Now, what does that look like? Well, Faith Baptist Church, one of their, you know, incredible programs is a food giveaway program. So every week, uh, people from East Oakland line up down the block uh, from the church uh, and they come in and there is a, a tremendous amount of food, uh, groceries and the like that they can take for free. It's, 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 it's providing solutions for uh, food insecure uh, in Oakland, in East Oakland. Um, and they give out over a million tons of food every year uh, uh, to local residents. And so that's really the, the impact that we're seeing is that it's not just about the climate. It's not just about reducing carbon. It's that with solar energy, with clean energy and energy efficiency, we can save community-based organizations money on their electric bills, which they can then put back uh, into the programs uh, that are serving their community. Uh, so that's a really exciting uh, initiative. Uh, you know, you're seeing, uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, Georgetown, Texas, uh, you know, so uh, rural uh, conservative uh, uh, area, uh, George, you know, uh, Dale Ross, who is the uh, Republican mayor, uh, was basically presented with different options of how they were going to power the city moving forward. Uh, and not only was the 100% clean energy plan uh, more cost effective, uh, but it was also going to have all these additional uh, health, climate uh, impacts, as well as attracting businesses to that city. Uh, and so, you know, Georgetown, Texas, an unlikely place is actually, after Burlington, Vermont, uh, the second city in America to be 100% clean energy powered. Um, you know, another example is uh, uh, MGM uh, Resorts in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think of them as a sustainability leader, uh, uh, but actually, you know, they own over uh, you know, a dozen resorts uh, on the Las Vegas Strip, uh, and they ended up uh, building their own solar farm in the desert uh, and had to pay an $80 million exit fee from the local utility in order to do so. And it was still cost effective for them to do that. Uh, so, so the amount of job creation, the amount of wealth uh, generation that the clean energy economy presents to us uh, is here now. And the other thing, Keith, I'll mention is that since I started Revolve 10 years ago, the cost of solar panels alone have dropped 90%, 90% in the last 10 years. And that's only accelerating faster and faster, right? The cost of solar energy will continue to drop. Uh, and so it's no longer a question of, can we get to 100% clean energy? We will get to 100% clean energy. The question is, how do we do it in a way that's equitable, just, uh, and fast enough? All right. And that is a, a, a bright image of the future of the green energy economy that uh, hopefully we can achieve. Uh, looking forward to that one. Uh, we have been speaking to uh, Andreas Corellis. He, once again, is the founder and executive director of San Francisco-based Revolve. It's a nonprofit that helps other nonprofits install solar panels. He's also the author of Climate Courage, How Tackling Climate Change Can Build Community, Transform the Economy, and Bridge the Political Divide in America. Andreas Corellis, thanks so much. Thanks, Keith, for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. 
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.